Christ is my firm foundation. I love that song. Um, we've been singing that song, I think, since the very beginning. And, you know, if there's one thing that's guaranteed in this world is that we're going to have trouble and we're going to have stormy seas and things are going to happen. And the big question is, where is our house built? You know, do we have a firm foundation or are we built on the sand? Uh, how are we going to react? Are we going to melt when uh, tough times come? Uh, are we going to be able to stand firm and people look at us and say, man, what is different about those people? What is their life built on? And uh, so that's one of the reasons why I love that song. Well, I was working on this message this week, and I was just thinking it's very humbling to me uh, that I've been able to pastor here for two years now, over two years. And, you know, I, I love it. It's been a tremendous blessing to me. You guys have been a tremendous blessing to our family. Um, but I have spent, most of you know this, I've spent you know, the last 23 years in the business world. You know, I have a day job. Most of you know I work for a TV station. I've spent all my whole career in advertising. And as a part of that, um, I look at numbers like all day long, right? I do lots of calculations. I stare at numbers quite a bit. Um, and one of the things that's come in really handy over those 23 years is whiteout. Whiteout comes in really handy. I've made a couple mistakes over the last couple years. Whiteout comes in really handy. And I can tell you what, one of the things that's a really neat trick is if you white something out, if you use the correction tape, then you make a copy of it, can't even tell. Can't even tell that there was a mistake. Um, I remember using liquid whiteout when I was using a typewriter, okay? That's, that makes me sound old, doesn't it? I was like 13 at the time, okay? So I'm uh, still pretty young. But I was, whiteout is one of our best friends. And, you know, as my, uh, as my daughters would say, it's very satisfying, <laughs> it's very satisfying when you can make something look completely new, like there was no mistake in the first place. Uh, Isaiah 118, the Lord says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They, though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Man's greatest need is spiritual whiteout. Okay, that's what we need. We need all of our sins to be erased. All of our sins that we've ever done, all the sins that we're doing currently, all the sins that we are ever going to do. We need them to be removed and erased completely. The outside world doesn't get forgiveness, all right? Doesn't understand. It doesn't make sense. We have a strong sense of justice within us. If somebody has wronged us, they should pay for it, right? That is our default. That's what we think. They should pay for it. Um, but then when the Holy Spirit invades our lives, opens up our eyes, we see our own sin, and we think, I shouldn't be judging other people because I deserve judgment. But we need somebody to save us from that judgment, right? We need, and the Holy Spirit directs our gaze to Jesus, and Jesus is standing there with white robes, Right? And he offers us a trade. He said, I'll trade you. You give me those scarlet sins, and I'll give you my white robes of righteousness. And big religious word, but it's called justification, right? We've been justified. We've been pardoned, just as if I'd never sinned. That's what he does for us. Our record has been completely cleaned up. All of our sins have been expunged. But today we're going to be talking about a sin that is unpardonable. This is the unpardonable sin, a sin that can't be wiped off the books. It won't be forgiven because it can't be forgiven. And that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The verses that we're going to talk about here today have scared a lot of people, right? They frighten a lot of people, and rightly so, because if there is a sin that we can commit that is not going to be forgiven, 
I want to make sure that I don't forgive it or I don't commit it, right? And I remember when I was young, I used to just, I used to just lay in my bed, right? And try to think of every single thing that I had done wrong and ask God for forgiveness of it because I wanted to make sure that I had confessed all my sins and there wasn't going to be something that was going to trip me up. And so these verses today, very important. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Okay, who brought their Bibles? Did you guys dust them off? Did you bring them in today? All right, dust them off. 12:22 through 32. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and he saw and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cows out demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. One of the biggest lies that Satan tells people is that you can't be forgiven. You've done too much. You've gone too far. How could he forgive you now? And people don't want to believe that, right? Nobody wants to believe that they're beyond saving, that they can't be forgiven. And so what people try to do, right? They try to earn favor with God. They try to do it by good deeds. They want to be a good person. If you ask people, do you believe in heaven? majority of people will say they believe in heaven. How are you going to get in? And people will say, well, I'm going to try to do more good deeds than bad deeds. I think I'm a pretty good person, but they're judging by the wrong standard. And, you know, a lot of people, that will keep a lot of people from church. That will keep a lot of people from, from walking through the doors thinking that I need to clean myself up before I walk into church. Okay, but that would be like somebody having to wait until they're healed up before they go to the doctor. Okay, it doesn't make any sense. That's what the church is. It's a hospital for the hurting. This is where people get healed up. This is where people get strengthened and restored before they go back out. And yet, that's what a lot of people do. You think that the biggest sin that anyone could commit, the worst thing that somebody could do, would be to crucify the Son of God. To kill the Messiah, you would think that would be number one on the list of things that you could commit. But Jesus utters the most incredible words as he's hanging on the cross right? He is barely clinging to life, and he looks up and he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They have no idea what they're doing. God, please forgive them. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.8, none of the rulers understood what they were doing because if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Jesus asked God to forgive the people that are killing him. The forgiveness that God offers is so utterly beyond our understanding. We cannot 
grasp it. Psalms 86.5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And when Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments, he said, Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And the prophet Micah wrote this, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. That's who our God is. That's who our God is. That's the essence of the gospel that God forgives those who are repentant. The degree of sin doesn't forfeit forgiveness. Okay, Even the volume of sin that we commit doesn't negate his forgiveness. Even the seven deadly sins can be forgiven. The Pharisees here were dangerously close to committing the sin that could not be forgiven. They're rejecting Jesus right in the middle of overwhelming evidence. And we live in a world right now that is intentionally blind to sin. They've intentionally blinded themselves to sin. Uh, Men can be women, right? Women can be men. Birthing people, all the things, right? People have intentionally blinded themselves to the truth. And this gender identity farce, all of this stuff, it's not new, gang. It ain't new. Remember what I said? If it's new, it ain't true. (laughs) And if it's true, it ain't new. This evil isn't new. God's truth is forever, okay? And this is just the latest manifestation of people wanting to play God, wanting to be their own God, to find their own truth. And Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's getting really difficult for anybody outside the church these days to define what truth is. We know what truth is. Sometimes even Christians themselves have a tough time with truth because they're not reading the truth. Okay, They're not reading His Word. But the world is trying to make up its own truth because it can't define truth. And so it says this in verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. They can't believe because they won't believe. And that's what this, sex, that's what this section is today. Jesus had performed all kinds of miracles through his ministry. But this one in particular, this healing in particular, took people's breath away. They brought him a man who was demon-possessed. He couldn't see. He couldn't speak. Uh, Some translations say that he was blind and dumb. This is the man that they brought to Jesus. He was bound physically, but he was also bound spiritually. This guy was in bad shape, about as bad a shape as you could be. And Jesus heals him instantly. Instantly, Jesus speaks the word and heals this man. And he demonstrates to everyone his authority, his power, not over just the physical realm, but over the spiritual realm as well. There is now no, there's beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's no doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. That's why this took people's breath away. He had power over the physical realm, he had power over the spiritual realm, and people could now say, this guy is the Messiah. And yet the Pharisees were blind to the truth because of their sin. Uh, We can try to get people Listen, we can try to get people all the worldly help we can. But if Jesus isn't involved, people are going to stay bound. They're going to stay blind. They're going to do dumb things. Okay, there's 
absolutely nothing wrong with Bible-based Christian counseling, getting help from people that are guiding towards the Lord. But if we're looking for help in the world, we're not going to get the freedom. We're not going to get um, you know, the spiritual freedom that we need if Jesus isn't involved. Our hope isn't what the world has to offer. It's what the heaven has to offer. It's what God provides for us in His Son. The Pharisees were convinced that the Messiah was going to come to give them worldly relief, right? They thought that the Messiah was going to come with royal robes and with trumpets and with a throne and with an army. That's what they chose to believe. They weren't prepared for a man who was compassionate, for a man who was meek, for a guy who was humble, for a man who had some very nondescript, very unimpressive disciples that were following him with the masses of hangers-on, right? The clingers, the great unwashed, as they would call them. And they weren't prepared for this. But Nathan, doesn't the Old Testament describe the Messiah as somebody who's meek and somebody who's humble, right? Somebody who cares and is compassionate. Yes, it does. You have to read the whole thing. But the scribes and the Pharisees who considered themselves the custodians of the Scripture were now choosing which Scriptures they wanted to focus on, which ones they wanted to believe. And that's a very dangerous place to be. The fastest way for a church or a Christian to lose its potency is to start leaving out parts that we don't like, to start skipping over parts of the Scripture that make us uncomfortable. When we don't read the Scriptures and we intentionally move over, look over parts of the Bible that we don't like, we have a wrong idea of who God is, even though we have all the evidence that we need. Jesus was giving the Pharisees all the evidence they needed. This miracle in particular was going to force them to make a decision about Him. This miracle was going to force them to choose a side. And the people there were making their choice. They were saying, this guy, could this guy be the Messiah? Like the son of David. We think this guy is the son of David. I don't know why they had any more doubt when they watched what had happened. Continual miracles, power over the spiritual realm, power over the physical realm. And they weren't just talking about his family tree, son of David. Son of David was a title for the Messiah. Um, we're going, you guys, some of you may know this, we're leaving this week. We're going to go see Devin, our son. And so this couple weeks ago, he took a trip, a day trip, a weekend trip over to Scotland. Now, it was pretty fun because um, we're from Scotland. My ancestors are from Scotland. And so he was over there and he went through this place and they had all these books on ancestry, people that were from Scotland. And he found our family name, what we descended from. And so he was sharing that with us. It was pretty cool. And he sent the, uh, you know, the our family colors and uh, the family crest, which was really, really interesting. And as I was looking at it, the family crest is like a tree with the top lopped off. I'm like, wait a minute. This doesn't seem very impressive. Like, what is that about? But it had a saying on the top, and it has like some branches, you know, that are growing out of the bottom. And the saying meant, I grow green again, or I grow strong again. And I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. But when you look at it, I'm like, that doesn't look very impressive. But it kind of is good symbolism of new life, right? New life that's breathed inside. I'm like, all right, I can, I can get behind that new life in our family. But they weren't talking about a family tree. They were talking about this guy is the Messiah. And the Pharisees heard it and they started to panic. And so they said something really, really stupid. It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, Beelzebul, of course, was another name for Satan. And they had picked this up 
because the Philistines had a demonite god that they worshipped called Beelzebul. And his name literally meant Lord of the Flies. Not a real impressive title, but that's what they used. Actually, the Jewish people had kind of changed it. They had tweaked it slightly to mean Lord of Dung, since that's where the flies are generally flying, um, just to kind of make fun of that and just kind of give it even a worse meaning. It's only by the devil that he casts out devils. That's what they were saying. And since their skepticism of Jesus had turned into criticism, and their criticism had turned into rejection, which then led to open Um, open hostility. They only had two options, okay? Because Jesus' power was undeniably supernatural. He either had to be from heaven or he had to be from hell. And because they had already rejected him as Messiah, they only had to conclude that he was an agent of Satan. There's only two superpowers. One's from heaven and one's from hell, right? Because they had rejected him, they had to conclude that he must be from the devil. But that accusation that they made, it's interesting because they didn't make it directly towards Jesus. Okay, they made it to the crowds. They started with the crowds. They were trying to, you know, plant a seed of doubt in their minds because they still had quite a bit of power, quite a bit of influence over the crowds. So they needed to create doubt in their minds. That's the first tactic that the devil used in the garden. That's the first tactic that he used with Eve. He tries to, he tries to create doubt and speak a lie. Is it any wonder that faith is what brings us to the Lord? Faith is what brings us to the Lord. So his first job is to try to create doubt in our minds. Satan waited until the perfect time where Eve was standing next to the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he walks up and he says this. He said, did God really say, did God really say that you can't eat of the trees of the garden? See, it's a doubt mixed with a lie. That's not what God said. God said you can eat of any of the trees of the garden. That's not that's one. This one's off limits, but you can eat of all the other trees of the garden. That's always how he operates. Doubt mixed with a lie. Did God really say? Are you sure? Are you sure you heard him right? He tries to create doubt in our minds by speaking a lie. Uh, Carl Rogers was an American psychologist. When he was 22 years old, he entered the Union Theological Seminary in New York. And while he was there, he participated in a seminar that was organized to explore spiritual doubts. Like, why do people have doubts spiritually? And he said this, years later, the majority of the members, in thinking their way through questions they had raised, thought themselves right out of religious work. And I was one of them. In exploring doubt, Satan had created the doubt and cultivated it big enough in their minds that they walked away from the faith. And if you explore doubt... That's what Satan's going to do. He's just going to feed it. He's going to cultivate it until it just starts to take over. Last week, I asked the question, what are we beholding? What are we beholding? Because what we're beholding is what we're reflecting. You have to behold Jesus if you're going to reflect him to those around you, if you're going to reflect him to the world. But if you behold or entertain darkness, you're not going to reflect anything. You can't reflect darkness, okay? It's just going to start to consume you. So they don't address Jesus directly, but Jesus goes right after them, showing them how absurd their accusation is. How can a kingdom fight against itself? Well, there was a, there's a very famous saying. You've probably heard it. Um, it's accredited to a couple different people. But it says, uh, it's a very profound statement in, in society. A great civilization is not conquered from without until it is first destroyed from within. 
great civilizations, empires, destroyed from within before they were ever conquered from the outside. One of the easiest ways for people or a country uh, to fall is to start tearing each other apart. Okay, why do the hard work of trying to conquer a country if you can just turn them against each other and make them do most of the work? Then they will be easily conquered if you can just turn them against each other. That's why I think America is in such a precarious position right now because we are more divided than we've ever been, I think, in our entire history. Uh, And we're in a place now where things have been set in place where that evil can thrive behind the walls. The biggest one is, is probably social media. Social media does a lot of good, right? But it also does a lot of evil. People spew more online than they ever would if they were talking to somebody face to face. And again, it's kind of a, a truth mixed with a lie. There's some good, but there's also a lot of bad with it. And what Satan does, gang, he doesn't just come out and tell you a flat lie. He tells you something that has just enough truth in it to be believable, but it's mixed with a lie, right? That's what he does. Evil can't cast out evil, but chaos can breed more chaos, right? Deception leads to more deception, and the supreme deceiver is supremely deceived because he thinks he can overthrow God. He thinks that he can rule this world. There's no harmony, right? There's no harmony. There's no unity in the kingdom of Satan, but he's not going to tolerate disobedience, and he's not going to tolerate division, So it's ridiculous to think that Jesus would be casting out demons by the power of the demon. And so he calls them out on it. He says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Saying, really guys? That's how you think I'm casting them out? What about your exorcists? What are your sons doing? What power are they using? And Luke Um, writes in Acts 19 about a time where there were these seven brothers, seven brothers um, who were the sons of a priest named Sceva. And they were going around um, trying to be professional exorcists. They were trying to cast demons out of people, making money off that. And they started to notice that, you know, the disciples and Paul were having quite a bit of success. And so they started to copy what they were doing as a formula. And so what they would do is they would go to people and they would say, I adjure you by the Jesus that Paul preaches to come out of them. That's what they would do. Until one day, the demon talked back. That would be freaky. You're trying to cast a demon out of somebody and they talk back to you. And this demon said, Jesus we know. And Paul we're familiar with. But who are you? Wouldn't that be terrifying? Who are you? And it says that the man overpowered them, beat them up. They ran out of the house bleeding and naked, trying to use Jesus' name as a formula. They didn't have any power. They were speaking the name, but they didn't have any power. May we live in such a way. May we pray in such a way. This should be the desire of our hearts, guys. This is the desire of my heart. I don't do it perfectly, okay? Got a long ways to go. I'm example number one. Um, I want to live in such a way where the demons know our name. May we, may, they, may we not stand in front of them and be like, we don't know who you are. You're not a threat. We know Jesus. We know Paul. We know Billy Graham. We know all these people, but we'd have no idea who you are. All you're doing is trying to use the name without any power. I talked about it last week, that Jesus needed to be empowered to walk this life out in the flesh. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. And as man, his flesh needed help. He needed the power of the Holy Spirit. And if he needed the power of the Holy Spirit, how much more do we need it in our sinful state? 
Directly after Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on him, and this is the Spirit directed him out into the wilderness for 40 days where he fasted and prayed. And if you've ever fasted, man, it is the ultimate test. I like to eat. And I've done some fasts, never done a 40-day fast. It is the ultimate test. If we can master that part of our lives, we can pretty much discipline ourselves in any other area. So Jesus gets baptized. Holy Spirit falls, heads into the desert for his ultimate test, 40 days of fasting. And then he has to face the devil himself. And what did he use? What did he use to drive Satan away? He used the word. He used the scriptures. And he didn't flip to Corinthians or Ephesians, okay? He went to Deuteronomy. I happen to think that maybe that's where he was having his devotionals that morning in the book of Deuteronomy, thinking about that. And so he uses three verses from Deuteronomy to drive away Jesus. So next time you're tempted to think that the Old Testament can be kind of dry or there might not be something for you in there, Jesus used Deuteronomy three times to drive the Satan away. So if we want to be able to stand up, to be able to live through those temptations, to be able to live through those tests and drive the devil away, we need to know our Bibles. We need to know the Scriptures. So the Pharisees come at Jesus, and he puts it right back onto them. Your disciples will be your judges. Let's take a look at your sons, your people, and what power they're doing their work. You wouldn't say that your people are using satanic power to do that. So why are you saying that I am? Jesus says, but if the Spirit of God is what I use to cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Guys, you're in a very dangerous place right now. Because if I'm doing this through the power of God, which I am, then that means that the kingdom of God has come upon you. John 3.19, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus up on the rooftop, and he says this, And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. This is the judgment. The light came in, and people rejected it because they loved the dark. They loved their evil deeds. He's saying, you're going to bring judgment down upon yourselves. The Pharisees weren't rejecting Jesus for lack of evidence. It was all over the place. They were rejecting him because of their bias, because of their prejudice. Their own deeds, their own motivations, which were evil, made them so they could not handle Jesus' righteousness. And so they chose to reject him. They knew all the Old Testament prophecy of what the Messiah was going to do. And yet, in, in, in spite of all of these eyewitness accounts, all of this evidence of who Jesus was and what he was doing, they still said no. They still said no to Jesus. Jesus said, the kingdom has come upon you. And if I'm the Messiah, which I am, then that means I'm the coming king. And that means you're standing in my domain, rejecting me openly. And you guys are really, really close to committing the unpardonable sin. Matthew's gospel is directed, is directed specifically to the Jewish people. His, his gospel contains more references to the Old Testament than any of the other three. And he does that because he's speaking to the Jewish people directly, telling them, this is the coming king. This is our Messiah. And by the way, here's how we treated him. Here's what we did to him. Where he is, that's where his kingdom is. Wherever Jesus is, if he's in heaven or if he's on earth, wherever he is, that's where the kingdom is. And those who love him, those who want to see him, those who are excited about him coming back, those are his loyal subjects. Paul wrote this to his protege, Timothy, near the end of his life. He said, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. 
Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Will we be those who love his appearing, or will we be those that are terrified like the Pharisees were? May we not be terrified the way the Pharisees were. May we be excited and longing for that day when he returns. They were the religious leaders, but they were children of the darkness rather than children of the light. And Jesus told them at one point, he said, you guys are children of your father who is the devil and you do his work. That was a tense conversation. Jesus actually called them out and said, you guys are demonically possessed. Not me. I'm walking in the light. You guys are possessed by demons. Is it possible for people who call themselves Christians to be children of darkness and be doing the work of Satan? Jesus says it is. We have a term uh, in politics, rhino, right? Republican in name only. People that are pretenders. They say they're Republicans, but they're not. Well, a lot of people are religious in name only. They're rhinos in that way. And it's a very dangerous place to be because Jesus says, you're either with me or you're against me. You're either a children of light or you're a child of the darkness. And unfortunately, that describes a large swath of Christians in America today. The rapture is going to be, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be incredible. That is going to be the pinnacle of the church is being rescued out of this place before the tribulation happens. But it's going to be the most terrifying day for the rhinos, for the people who are simply religious in name only. So don't be a rhino. Don't be a rhino. Jesus says, or how can someone enter a strong man's house, plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. You think about it. Everything Jesus did was directly opposed to the kingdom of darkness. He was healing sickness. He was healing disease. He was raising people from the dead. He was casting out demons. He was forgiving sins. All of that directly opposed to the Satan, to Satan's kingdom. And yet they said, we think you have a demon. They are rejecting Jesus in the face of all of this evidence. And Jesus says, haven't I demonstrated without a doubt in front of you, in front of all of Israel, my power, my authority over the kingdom of, of Satan? Haven't I, haven't I showed you that I am the Messiah? I've claimed it, I've proved it, and yet you guys are rejecting me. Who but God could enter the domain of Satan and successfully carry off his property? We're told that he is the ruler of this world, which means everything here is now under his control. But God steps in every once in a while and says, I'm just going to show you who's in control right now. Call those miracles. When God intervenes in human history. Colossians 1.13 says that we have been transferred. You and I, as Christians, have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We've been transferred. Jesus was defeating Satan at will, and it wasn't even close. Some of you may have seen this picture. It's kind of a funny picture. I saw it a long time ago of Jesus arm wrestling Satan, right? Not even close to being accurate, right? Okay, For Jesus didn't look like a young Kenny Rogers anyway. So it's a ridiculous picture. But creation is no match for the creator, okay? It's not an arm wrestling match. Jesus is, can defeat him at will. He's walking in, he's plundering him, and taking what was supposed to be under his control. 
Now, I'm not making light of the situation because Satan obviously is a very powerful being, okay? But his power is limited. His power is limited, and his fate is sealed, and his time is short, which is the reason why things are ramping up. Things are getting worse, and they're getting worse the closer we get to Jesus' return. So he says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Here's the problem with a lot of people. They think that there is a big gray area, okay? And that if they're not with the devil, that they're okay. They're in the gray area, and I just want to be closer to the, you know, that side of the gray area than this side of the gray area. But as long as I'm kind of in this space, then I should be okay because I'm not with Satan. People tend to think that that's the case. But it's not necessary to oppose God to be against God. All you have to do is not be with him. There's one choice. Be with him or you're against him. There's no middle ground. If you're not gathering, you're scattering. If you're not being a light, then you're letting the darkness spread. If you don't belong to God, then you're an enemy of God. There are only two groups. There's only children and there's rebels. There are no conscientious objectors in the spiritual battle in the spiritual war. There's all no man's land in between. You guys probably seen the movies, right? World War I, World War II, where you have all the guys that are in the trenches over here. And then you've got the enemy that's away on the other side of the field. And everything in between is no man's land, right? If you step out into no man's land, you're going to get shot. You're going to get killed. The enemy's going to take you down. Nobody went out there. You can't stand in no man's land spiritually because the enemy's going to take you down. You have to be on one side or the other. There's only two options. And Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now these two verses have been some of the most debated verses in the Bible. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What's the difference between blasphemy of Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit? I thought they were all one. What's the deal? Well, blasphemy by itself is an irreverent uh, defiance of God, right? It's a blatant disrespect of God. So what's the difference between the blasphemy of God and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Jesus said whoever commits that will not be forgiven, so it's aptly named the unpardonable sin. Uh, We've all probably heard it. I've spent a lot of years thinking about it. I've had lots of conversations about, about it with people. And if there's an unpardonable sin, right, that's the thing. If there's an unpardonable sin, I want to make sure that I have not committed it because I want to be with him in that day. I want to make sure that I am on the side of Jesus. All right, I'm going to give you the answer today. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. So, you guys ready? Won't have any questions after today. Jesus said that every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. That's pretty all-encompassing. Every sin, every blasphemy, except for one. Which is the most extreme. In the Old Testament days, if you blasphemed God, if you said something that was blasphemous, that was a death penalty. You got stoned to death for being blasphemous or saying something against God. And in the last days, which I believe we're living in, blasphemy will be at its peak right before the tribulation. It will be at its peak when Jesus takes the church out of here. It'll be the defining characteristic of a people who rebelliously oppose God. What we're experiencing in our culture right now isn't just an indifference towards God. It is a rebellious, defiant rejection of God. It's blasphemy. 
Now, Jesus said that every form of blasphemy can be forgiven, just like any other sin when it's repented of, right? When we ask forgiveness, when it's confessed and repented. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, he said, I myself was a blasphemer. I was a blasphemer when I was trying to do the Christians in, when I was trying to destroy the church, I was a blasphemer. But look what God did with Paul. And then we have Peter. Peter was standing in front of people cursing up one side and down the other that he did not know Jesus, rejecting the Lord. And look what God did with Peter. He forgave him and he restored him. Even Christians can blaspheme, all right? We can all blaspheme any word, any thought that is opposed to the Lord or defames his name in any way is a form of blasphemy, all right? Questioning his goodness, questioning his faithfulness, his love, his truth, all of that is a form of of blasphemy. It defames who God is. But they're forgivable by his grace. 1 John 1 9 says that if we forgive our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Even speaking against Jesus. Again, the men at the foot of the cross who were mocking him as he was dying, Jesus said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. There is a difference between ignorant blasphemy right? And someone who has a determined unbelief in Jesus Christ, a refusal to believe even in spite of all the evidence. That's what he's talking about. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens men's eyes, who reveals Jesus to people, who gives us understanding when we're reading through the scriptures. This warning that Jesus issues here is twofold. First, it's addressed to the Pharisees specifically. In the face of every possible eyewitness account, all of the evidence of Jesus' messiahship, his deity, they still said no. And because of their hardness of heart, because of their continued rejection of him, there was going to be an eternal unforgiveness for that. Second, it's addressed to those in the future, just general people like us, everybody, mankind generally. There is so much overwhelming evidence of who Jesus is and what he's done, and yet the majority of people will still say no, choosing not to believe. You can be forgiven of any sin, any sin, right up until your dying breath, but if you choose to reject him, that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That is the thing that you cannot be forgiven for, is a blatant, defiant rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to note here that Jesus hasn't said that they have crossed the line yet, but that they are very, very close to crossing that line into the unforgivable sin. And he's warning them. In reality, uh, this teaching here, what he was saying to them was an act of grace. He's trying to keep them from crossing over that line. You guys are dangerously close to committing this sin. Now, he knew that they were not going to be repentant, but he said this because there were actually some of the Pharisees who would repent, who would actually believe in Jesus after his resurrection. And if you're sitting here today or if you're listening online and your desire is for Jesus Christ to be the center of your life and you've asked for forgiveness and you want to follow him in obedience, you're saved. You're saved from the wrath of God. And the only thing that's unforgivable is a determined rejection of his offer. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has opened your eyes. You know who Jesus is. You've seen the evidence. You've heard the truth. And yet you say, no. You know, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah had a tough assignment. People of Israel were in complete rebellion towards the Lord. And God told Jeremiah, I want you to be my mouthpiece. I want you to go speak my words 
to the people, Jeremiah, but I have news for you. They're not going to listen. They're not going to listen. That would be every preacher's nightmare, by the way. You're going to go preach your guts out, but nobody's going to listen to you. And then eventually in Jeremiah 7, he says, listen, Jeremiah, I don't even want you to pray for these people. Not only are they not going to listen, but they're doomed. Don't even pray for them, because if you do, I'm not going to listen. Why was it so bad? He tells us. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and stubbornness of their, of their evil hearts. And they went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. God spoke, but they didn't listen. And God's speaking today, but people aren't listening. And there comes a time in those people's lives where God won't speak to them because they have hardened their heart for too long. They have rejected him for too long. And at some point, it's going to be too late. I read a story this week about six pilots who flew off from an aircraft carrier. This is in World War II. And the ships are in the Atlantic Ocean. And there was a carrier and there was like a destroyer and a couple of other small ships. And so they fly off in search of um, submarines. And they want to try to sink some submarines. And they were supposed to be back at a specific time. But the leader of the squadron wanted to stay out longer. He wanted to see if they could find some submarines so they could make a big hit. Right? And so they returned late. Now, what had happened was there was a German armada that was sailing into this sector, and they had been alerted to this. And so because of that, the commander had no other choice but to, they were outgunned, they were outmanned. And so he said, we have to turn off all the lights, and we have to break radio contact. We can't give ourselves away. The carriers were so important to the mission of trying to win the war, they couldn't jeopardize losing that carrier. And so the, parent, the, the pilots are returning back, and they're almost out of fuel. And they're back to where the ship should be, but they can't see it because there's no lights. And they're radioing, radioing to the operator, panicking. Just turn on one light so that we can try to land the planes. But they couldn't risk it. And so the commander had to give the command of radio silence, and the, the operator had to turn off the radio. And those six pilots had to ditch in the Atlantic Ocean, and all six of them perished. They all died because they could not find their way back. They were too late. And there will come a time when God will turn off the radio. There will be radio silence and it will be too late. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6, Today is the day of salvation. Jesus told the people, he said, This is the year of the Lord's favor right now. He stopped. The rest of that talks about God's judgment, but he stopped right there. Now is the year of the Lord's favor, period, not comma, like it was in Isaiah. Make your choice. Today is the day of salvation because the time is coming where it will be switched off. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, complete and determined rejection of who Jesus is, especially in the midst of overwhelming evidence. And some people would say to that, would say, well, Nathan, what about the pygmies? What about the people in South, South America that haven't heard the name of Jesus? Well, Abraham was having a conversation with God, and he said, he said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The judge of all the earth will do right. 
So we leave that up to him, the righteous judge. We let him make that decision. That's a pretty easy, people get all worked up about that. What you'll find with people who reject the Lord is they come up with all kinds of fringe arguments to try to make their point for rejecting the Lord and saying, there's still doubt in my mind. There's, there's actually no doubt because that, that question that you're raising, that thing that you're bringing up is such a fringe argument. It doesn't hold water, right? You're just determined to reject the Lord. And at some point, it'll be too late. But we let God be the judge of that. But if Jesus is your Savior, you don't have to worry about it. You're saved. Your sins are completely forgiven, completely expunged. But for those who are living in rebellion or are simply indifferent, again, you don't have to be opposing God directly. You just have to be not with Him. And He says, you're the ones that are scattering. You're not gathering with me. But today is the day of salvation. We're not promised tomorrow. Don't wait till tomorrow, right? That's, that should be the cry of our hearts to those that are unbelievers. Uh, that's actually what we're going to be talking about next Sunday. Um, we actually leave on Wednesday, so we won't be here physically. But I have a message that's been on my mind for a long time. It's been on my heart that I've wanted to share. And it's a message that was profoundly impactful to me personally. And so I've been wanting to share it. And basically, it comes down to this. Don't wait till tomorrow. Today's the day. If you have that thing in your life that you know needs to be gone, today's the day. Don't wait till tomorrow. If you need salvation, today's the day. Don't wait till tomorrow. That's the message.